morning, everybody. For four weeks now, we've been working through one particular section of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And the section that we've been looking at begins with the words, now, about food sacrificed to idols. And those words are in uh, chapter 8, verse 1. This is something that the church in Corinth wants to know Paul's opinion about. It would appear that they have written a letter to Paul, and this is one of the topics they want Paul to cover in his reply to them. And for some 74 verses, Paul addresses this question, beginning chapter 8, verse 1, and finishing uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And today, uh, Steph has read to us the last section of that reply. Why do they want Paul's opinion about this particular topic? Well, almost certainly because they couldn't quite work it out for themselves. Some of them were going into pagan temples, just as in fact they'd always done, and reclining, uh, that is, lying down on couches to participate in these meals. For indeed... Right across the Roman Empire, pagan temples were the center of all social, cultural, intellectual, and political life, as well as, of course, religious life. To not attend social functions in pagan temples, in the various temples of the gods and goddesses in Corinth, would have been in many ways social death. But others in the church, we can safely presume, were shocked and outraged, knowing deep in their consciences that eating unclean meat is the very last thing that God's holy people should be doing. Well, the church in Corinth was, and this actually was their major problem, their major problem was that they were a deeply divided church. Lots of different factions, lots of different schools of thought. Those who were campaigning for their right to participate in the pagan sacrificial meals had a well-reasoned argument, and it went like this. Their argument was, Paul, we are not ignorant. We're not superstitious. We have superior knowledge. We know that an idol is nothing at all. It's a statue, for goodness sake. It's not a god. Isn't this exactly what the Old Testament says itself? The idols of the nations are silver and gold. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Mouths, but they cannot speak. Etc., etc., etc. In Christ, we have superior knowledge. We know that there is no god but one god, the one and only true god, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, we know that food does not bring us any closer to God or even further away. We're not better off or worse off, spiritually speaking, for eating such meat. And thirdly, I am a child of God. I have the right to do anything. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. I, therefore, have every right to enter into a pagan temple. Indeed, I have more right than the pagans themselves. And to eat there, giving thanks in Jesus' name for whatever I receive. And uh, 
that is actually a remarkable piece of theological reasoning, and Paul acknowledges as much. But he also knows that's actually in their hands, it's just a justification. It's just a rationalization of something, indeed, that is sinful. In actual fact, they, as Christians, ought not to be doing what they're doing. Now, three weeks ago, we looked at the first plank in Paul's argument in reply. And the first idea that he brings to them is actually, brothers and sisters, this behavior is unloving. If you do something that actually offends the conscience of another of your brother or sister Christians, if you do something, therefore, that encourages the brother or sister Christian to go against their conscience, that is a very unloving thing to do because actually you're destroying their faith. Someone for whom Jesus died. Two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the second idea in his argument, that, that Paul, he, he just gives so many examples from his own life, one in particular that, that, that he sacrifices his own rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Hey, guys, you should do the same. And as part of that argument, Paul explained how he has chosen to be fluid with respect to his cultural identity, acting like a Jew when with Jews, acting like a Gentile when with Gentiles, weak in order to win the weak. For, as Paul writes, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Therefore, indeed, the Christian has rights and freedoms, but the Christian is prepared to surrender them for the sake of the welfare of others, rather than defending them at all costs, and especially forsaking them rather than preserving them um, uh, at the expense of others. And last week we looked at the third plank in Paul's argument that pagan temples actually were places of terrible temptation, a place indeed not just of eating with non-believers, but indeed at like non-believers in a whole host of other ways, ways that every Christian knows are not right before God. Well, in the text that we've just read today, Paul adds one more argument to his response in verses 14 to 22, wherein he teaches about sacred meals before bringing all of these lines of thought together in his summary and conclusion in verses 23 and following. So then let's consider what Paul wants to teach us today about the nature of sacred meals, verses 14 to 22. The introduction to this section and the conclusion to this section are matched so that we can take verse 14 and 15 and then verse 22 together. And basically, you, that summarizes his argument, which is essentially... Think, please, about what it is that you're doing. Engage the brain. Flee from idolatry, because we know that whenever in the history of Israel, whenever the people of God worship gods and goddesses of the many nations that surround them, whenever they did that, it ended badly. Are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? We better not be. Unless, of course, we're stronger than him. Are we stronger than him? 
No, of course not. For our God is a jealous God. Uh, What's at issue is articulated for us in the second commandment. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Right in the middle, right at the heart of the second commandment is the nature and character of God as a jealous God. Uh, We uh, tend to use, that can be confusing for us, because we tend to use the words uh, envy and jealousy somewhat interchangeably. But really, the word envy means passionately desiring something that rightfully belongs to someone else. That's what envy is. I might envy my neighbor, his car, or my, my envy, my neighbor, her house, but really, actually, I'm being discontent and covetous. Jealousy, in contrast, means passionately desiring that which rightfully belongs to me. Um, Imagine, for example, if uh, somebody's um, spouse was uh, to begin uh, an uh, an adulterous affair, Um, uh, the one betrayed uh, would be uh, jealous, passionately desiring what belonged to them, which was their spouse's fidelity and love. Um, Jealousy would be aroused, uh, a passionate desire for what ought to be yours. And our God is a jealous God. He is passionately interested in that which rightfully belongs to him. And what rightfully belongs to him exclusively? our worship. It rightfully belongs to him, and he will not accept any kind of worship-share arrangement wherein he's worshipped on Sundays and Wednesdays and maybe Fridays and all the other days something else is worshipped. He's not willing to accept a worship-share arrangement. No more than you or I would accept sharing our spouses with somebody else. Utterly unacceptable because at heart the error of both things, idolatry and adultery, is identical. And that error is that it's delusional. And whatever is delusional is damaging. God punished the people of Israel, our forefathers, for their idolatrous worship by way of endless rounds of foreign domination and oppression, returning them to slavery, indeed, as a last resort, removing them from the promised land and taking them to foreign lands where they would indeed serve foreign gods in order to learn what it really means, the slavery, what it means uh, uh, to be in bondage to foreign gods. I speak to sensible people. Flee from idolatry. Are you so strong that you can arouse the jealous wrath of God and deal with it? Well, that's the introduction and the conclusion 
in the middle comes the reasoning, a, a reasoning um, that depends upon Paul comparing and contrasting two things, holy communion in church, compared and contrasted with eating meat sacrificed to an idol in a pagan temple. You're familiar with compare and contrast exercises? Do you remember them? Very good. All right. Paul writes, verse 16, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Uh, when, when we do a Holy Communion, uh, we are aware, typically, of what's happening at the physical level, and we're aware of what's happening at the intellectual or mental level. At the physical level, we know what we're doing. We're eating a small, indeed token, piece of bread or wafer, and we're drinking one little sip of port wine, a token taste of wine. That's what's happening at the physical level. At the intellectual or mental level, we are reminded as we do this of gospel truths, indeed of many gospel truths. We're reminded that Jesus died for us there on the cross, that by his blood we are forgiven, that by his death on the cross we belong to God and indeed we belong to each other. We're reminded that our salvation has been done for us and that we receive God's salvation, freedom from sin, judgment, the wrath of God, eternal damnation and the fear and anxiety fixed to such things. We are free from all of this, free from death as a free gift by grace through faith. And insofar as Holy Communion reminds us of these things, we find it constructive and edifying, a good thing to do. And insofar as this is what we believe about Holy Communion, insofar as as that's our understanding, we, we are right. But such an understanding in and of itself is inadequate. Because Paul's language is not about being reminded but rather about participation. Very different things. When we do Holy Communion, something is happening at the physical level, we eat and drink. Something is happening at the intellectual level, we are reminded and encouraged. But something is happening at the spiritual level as well. Something spiritual is happening. There is a spiritual transaction. And at this point, it may well, be, may well be good to remember that Holy Communion is symbolic. What that will mean, by and large, to Western thinkers of Western cultural traditions is that the bread and the wine is symbolic. It remains simply bread and wine, that's true. But as symbols, we think, they stand in for something not present. Representational symbolism is what we will hear when somebody talks about symbolism. But Paul, as a Hebrew, would agree that Holy Communion is symbolic, but reject that understanding of what it means that Holy Communion is symbolic. 
And that's because biblically, a symbol is not a representative abstract thing that stands in for something else. Rather, a symbol is a prophetic parable wherein the promises of God are signed, sealed, and delivered and received in faith. In Holy Communion, we have participation or communion spiritually with God and with each other. Spiritually united, spiritually bonded. In moving from Holy Communion to its pagan analogue, eating meat sacrificed to an idol in a pagan temple, Paul stops at an intermediate point He stops at a station on the way. The Israelites, who at that point were continuing to eat meat sacrificed uh, on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, he asks, using the present tense, do not those who are eating the sacrifices in the temple participate in the altar? To which, of course, Paul knows that his readers know that the answer is yes. By participating in a fellowship offering, you are taking part as an act of worship, the bestowal of worth. And you do so on the basis of the promises made to Israel through Moses. That he, God promised that that altar would be effective. That indeed, you would indeed be forgiven by b- virtue of burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, therein made on your behalf by the blood of sheep and goats, they were forgiven and allowed to remain in the promised land. Counted in, included in the covenant God made with Israel in the shade of Mount Sinai. Something spiritual is happening there, isn't it? Is Paul's point. So then compare and contrast with pagan worship. What is the same is this. Something spiritually is happening. A sacred meal fundamentally has a spiritual meaning, a spiritual purpose and a spiritual effect. Another thing that is the same is this. Participation in the sacred meal is consent, explicit consent. Ignorance is no defense. Participation in a sacred meal is giving assent to the ideas being presented and consent to the operating spirit. And that brings us to what is different. The operating spirit is a different spirit between those two sacred meals. Compare and contrast. When we join in Holy Communion, we can safely assume that the Holy Spirit is at work because we are obeying Jesus. The Holy Spirit is at work, and we as human beings have given him license to be at work in us as unfinished projects. We expect him, that is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to be doing precisely the work of Christ in us, calling disciples, opening eyes and ears, healing broken hearts and bodies, changing our minds so that we are like-minded with God on all things, rendering us conformed to the image of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the statue, so to speak, who shows us perfectly what God is like 
and what it means to be a human being. Paul's word to the Corinthian Christians, though, was this. In contrast, when you join in the religious observances of Greco-Roman religion, you can safely assume that Satan is at work in you and through you. Demons are at work in you because you have given them authority, license to do so. Yes, 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 Paul writes, we know that an idol is nothing at all. It's just a statue. It's, it has no magical properties. And yet the worship of such things is entirely a different matter. To join in idolatrous worship is to be a participant with demons. Something spiritually is happening. And they will be conforming you to the image of the idol, which, as you may have noticed, has eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear. You, like it, will be spiritually deaf and blind, unable to see what God is doing in your life. Broken and sick. Increasingly inanimate. Disagreeing with God on every conceivable issue, rendering you deformed as a human being because you are conformed to the idol you worship. You choose. Therefore, dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. What, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In verses 23 now to the end of the chapter, Paul brings the entire argument together the one that has taken three chapters to build. Paul fundamentally does not disagree with their argument. Yes, we are children of God. In Christ, we have the right to do anything. And yet, for the sake of love for others, we will not do anything that might tempt a brother or sister to sin against God by going against their own conscience. Yes, we know that food does not bring us any closer to God or further away. Meat is just meat. It has no magical properties. I agree with you. Even if it has been offered to an idol, it has no magical properties. Therefore, eat anything bought in the meat market without muddying the waters by asking unnecessary questions. Likewise, also, when you're invited out to dinner, receive whatever is put in front of you, giving glory to God and thanksgiving in Jesus' name for that which you've received. Well... <clears throat> Paul lived in a world where idolatrous connections were inescapable. Idolatry was everywhere. Everything was dedicated to this Roman god or that Greek goddess or whatever. And in these three chapters, Paul has crisscrossed through what we might see as three different strategies for living in a heavily contaminated world. Those three strategies are radical engagement, radical disengagement, and partial engagement. Radical engagement. Paul's approach to cross-cultural ministry is to be astonishingly fluid with respect to his cultural identity. When with Jews, he behaved like Jews. He did what was appropriate and honorable from a Jewish perspective. Likewise, when he was with Gentiles, non-Jews. He became all things to all people in order that by all possible means he might save some. Radical 
disengagement. Paul has shown us categorically that a Christian has absolutely no business whatsoever being in a pagan temple participating in pagan worship. On the contrary, flee. Partial engagement. In a world where all meat available was essentially, uh, it would have been sacrificed in the name of someone or something, engagement or non-engagement occasionally had to be nuanced by other things. Were there some people present whose conscience might be bruised if you partake? Well, then you'll do one thing. If not, then you might do another thing. Nuanced, partial engagement. Paul particularly engages with Greek culture in his love of sporting analogies. Something I don't really follow in his footsteps. I don't love sporting analogies, but previous ministers of St. Barnabas have. Um, the, the, the Greeks loved passionately their Ithmian games, and Paul uses analogues from the athletic stadium. Indeed, in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, if Paul had been re- writing to us, he would have referred at least once to Aussie rules football. Jews and Christians could have conceivably participated in the stadium as both spectators and as athletes. Sure, they could go along. Sure, they could join in, but not quite in the same way as the pagans around them, not offering incense or worshipping the gods, and certainly not running around in the nude like the Greeks did. Their participation, though technically possible, would have had to have been nuanced, partial engagement. We also live in a world where the fingerprints of idolatry are everywhere. Idolatries both ancient and modern. I um, drive, for example, an idolatrous car. It's a Volvo. uh, And the symbol of the Volvo is the god of Mars, a um, round shield and a spear pointing out, also since the Renaissance being the symbol for male. Or, or, or man. So, um, and the days of the week. Uh, they're all, they all have an idolatrous background. Um, they've all got heavy pagan connotations, three named for astrological identities, they being Saturn Day, Sunday, and Moon Day. And then the rest of the days of the week, I've got them here, named for uh, gods. Um, Tia Day, Tuesday, a Norse god, Tia. Woden's Day, a Germanic god, Thor's day, uh, a Norse god. Um, Frigid day, an Anglo-Saxon goddess. And then there's the months. Four of them are named directly in honor of pagan gods. We, and then there's, of course, contemporary idols, which is so much more difficult for us to spot because we've been, we, we live in a heavily contaminated environment, spiritually speaking. How, how will we make our way through? Well, Um, The same categories may prove useful, so let's consider them. Radical engagement. Christianity is not a culture, nor is Christian a cultural identity. Christianity is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his Son. In the power of the Holy Spirit and in the sure, real hope of eternal life, available now, to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, irrespective of their haircut or their clothing or their cultural identity. 
The gospel includes all cultures, redeems all cultures, transforms all cultures. It is possible, for example, to be a Labour Party Christian or a Liberal Party Christian or a Greens Party Christian or a Democrat Christian or a Republican Christian, a Tory Christian, a Communist Christian. Indeed, we might pray that it might be so because that's what we need at that level, radical engagement. By and large, Christians are free to engage in all cultural life and activities along with others. Radical disengagement. We are not free to participate in worship with others who don't know Jesus. We are not free to participate in things which we know to be satanic, such as cultural events that explicitly reject um, gospel values. Radical disengagement. This calls for careful tact and diplomacy. Devout and faithful people of other faiths generally do not react well if you point out to them that their belief system is satanic. And it's not kind or godly to do so. Rather, Paul teaches, we don't do anything that causes people to stumble, whether those outside of the church, Jews and Greeks, or those inside of the church. Verse 32. No, no, we treat everyone with loving respect, as indeed God does. Nevertheless, there will be always be areas of radical disengagement. We are not free to worship with them or to worship like them. Partial engagement. Things we might participate in, but in a nuanced way. Or things that some of us might participate in and others not, and we just have to be careful about how we deal with that. Two examples to think about, martial arts and yoga, and Harry Potter. I think enough time has passed for me to raise that name safely. Yoga and martial arts, enormously beneficial in terms of physical exercise and strengthening and core strength and learning coordination and control, and maybe also valuable in terms of stress release and relaxation. But we are not free to participate in any prayer, blessing, invocation, oath, or any other spiritual practice associated with those things. We're not free to join in in the same way that others join in, although we are free, arguably, to join in. We just join in in a nuanced way. Furthermore, if um, you're considering um, yoga or, or martial arts schools, remember that they are just that. They are schools. They teach a certain philosophy, and they seek to uh, mold the identity of their disciples. A Christian participant would need to think critically about any philosophical content that went with their chosen exercise and reject anything that ran counter to Christ's teaching. At one level, we need to see that our involvement, if we are involved at all, we need to see that our involvement will be partial, nuanced. Harry Potter books and films. Some Christians were able to immerse themselves in this, enjoying a work of fiction that offered a contemporary mix of ancient literary genre, such as mythology, fable, and fantasy, 
with a sprinkling of Christian motifs added in for good measure. Star Wars for a new generation, in other words. Something we can all enjoy. For other Christians, it had to be rejected out of hand. They read the same material as anti-Christian and demonic. Witches, witchcraft, warlocks, demonic spirits, the whole thing a battleground between good and evil, as though those two forces were equally balanced or something. A demonic idea. Star Wars, in other words, for a new generation. Something to be rejected by all. But I think that if any of us consider one side right and the other side wrong, we've actually missed the point. Harry Potter is indeed wrong, absolutely wrong, for some Christians. But that actually doesn't make it wrong for all Christians. We, we need to each hear and obey Christ's leading and wisdom as it applies to us individually and specifically, and to not judge others, nor allow ourselves to be judged on matters of conscience. Verse 29, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? What counts is that we do not boast in the freedoms we allow ourselves, nor do we trample the consciences of others, nor do we seek to control others according to the dictates of our own conscience. Now for the matters you wrote about. Food sacrificed to idols. It's taken us four weeks to get through all that Paul had to say about this topic. And that's because in getting through that material, the Corinthian Christians, and us also in turn, had to rethink a very great deal. May Christ's word live in us and bear much fruit to his glory. Amen.